Thanks, Laura. Good morning, church. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible with, with you, there's one in the chair in front of you. Ephesians chapter 1 is near the end of the Bible. If you're not familiar, let me pray, and let's turn to the Lord's Word for us this morning. God, I pray that you would as you always are, be faithful to bring life through the proclamation of your word. I pray that our hearts would be ready to hear, ready to listen, ready to be impacted and corrected and comforted and challenged. And I pray for children here this morning, teenagers, adults, who have yet to place their trust in Christ. They've yet to place their faith in Him. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work through your word this morning to save. We come to this gathering this morning with a variety of weeks, a variety of pressure, a variety of struggle with sin. I pray that you would use your word this morning to meet each person here exactly where they are, and like oxygen, would you breathe life into their hearts, into my heart. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> we shouldn't assume that it's going to be easy for us to pass the gospel down to the next generation. Doing so will require our conviction, our courage, our righteousness, hard work, and dependence on God. And children and teens, I'm speaking to you as well. If you're trusting Christ, then you're part of the process of passing the gospel down to the generation of people who will follow after us. The Christians in Ephesus, as we saw a few weeks ago, are in a tight spot. Opposition against the church in the first century city of Ephesus is organized and it's motivated. And the opposition is human and it's spiritual. The neighbors and family members of those who have forsaken all else to follow Christ aren't happy that they've turned away from the worship of their goddess Artemis. This is what it means to be an Ephesian. It's to worship Artemis. And they've also turned away from their worship of witchcraft and their practice of witchcraft. And Christians are melting idols in large quantities and burning massive amounts of witchcraft books. And the anger of their non-Christian neighbors and family members boils over into a furious riot that erupts into the Colosseum that could hold 25,000. And the spiritual forces that are standing behind the witchcraft and standing behind the worship of Artemis aren't happy either. In Acts 19, where Luke records Paul coming to the city of Ephesus, we read how Paul pro proclaims the gospel in the lecture hall of Ephesus for three months. He's contending for truth. He's arguing and persuading them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And as he does, God performs extraordinary miracles through Paul. People are healed from diseases and evil angels, that is demons, were fleeing from people. Jesus cost the Ephesians significantly. Their pursuit of Jesus was unpopular. 
It was despised and it was persecuted. Following Jesus and maintaining a friendship with the world wasn't going to be possible for the Ephesians. And that didn't require them to be contentious. It did require them to hold fast to their convictions, to courageously stand firm, to defend the hope they have in Christ, to depend on the great power of God at work in them. And every generation of the church since then needs to be determined to pass the gospel on to the next generation. And the challenge for our generation will likely be this. Can't we accept the gospel promises and abandon the gospel ethics? Can't we treasure the gospel promises without the embarrassment of the gospel's commands? Can't we move on from the gospel's moral expectations, for example, about sexuality and marriage and gender? Can we not just leave those behind? Because that's what our culture seems willing to accept, a God of love who does not take our sins seriously. Well, for the love of God and neighbor, we can't leave gospel ethics at the door, which I hope to show you in the next 30 minutes. Our passage this morning is one long sentence in the Greek. I think it's 169 words. Thank you, Paul. And the main idea is to hold fast to the gospel, trusting Christ's victory. Trusting Christ's victory. That doesn't mean we stand by and watch passively. It does mean that at the end of the day, we are finally resting in Christ's victory. Paul is giving thanks in this prayer that the Ephesians are still holding fast, that they're still trusting Christ. And then in a way, he's encouraging them through his prayer to continue to hold fast. And I think we can immediately take these things on board as we resolve to faithfully pass the gospel, all of it, its promises and its commands onto the next generation. So how do we hold fast? Paul provides, I think, three practical steps for us. The first one in verses 15 and 16 is to persist in grateful prayer. Persist in grateful prayer. Look at verses 15 and 16 again that Laura read for us. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. Paul's instinct, in light of the endurance of the Ephesians church, his instinct is to heave up grateful prayers to the Lord. He's saying, well done, church. Well done, despite opposition from your neighbors, human and spiritual. You're pressing on. You're holding fast. Your faith is firmly grounded in Christ. You've abandoned witchcraft and the worship of Artemis, and you're trusting your present and your future to Jesus alone. And I'm giving thanks, too, for your love for one another, the way that you're bearing one another's burdens, the way that you're outdoing one another and showing honor. And your love for one another is evidence that you've been impacted and affected by God's love for you. So he's praising God for their faith in Christ. He's praising God for their love for one another. And that begins to be the ground of his prayers for them. It's a well done to the church in Ephesus. And because of what Paul has heard, when he thinks of the Ephesian church from house arrest in Rome, his heart swells up with gratitude, and his prayers are made up with gratitude over what the Ephesian church is doing. They're holding fast to their faith, and it's evidenced in love for one another. 
But Paul's persistent prayer is not just for him. He calls the church to join him. Flip over with me to Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul takes this steadfast, persistent prayer that he is demonstrating and he's calling on the church in Ephesus to follow his example. He says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Take the helmet of salvation, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The helmet of salvation is a reminder of who we are in Christ. Take the truth about who you are in Christ, what He's done, His calling of you, your future inheritance. Take all of that and put it on like a helmet. Renew your mind. Remind yourself who you are as one of His children. And then take the sword of the Spirit. Take the Word of God. Grasp the sword. Wield it. This is your offensive weapon in prayer. It's God's Word. It's the sword of the Spirit. And here's what he tells them to do in verse 18. You've got the helmet of salvation. You know who you are in Christ. You've got the Word of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the Bible. You've got those things. Now, Go to battle, fight, pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Paul says pray in the Spirit. Be dependent on the Holy Spirit in your prayers. Let Him guide your prayers. And to do that, use His weapon. Keep the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the Bible in your hand. Let His Word guide your prayers. Let the Spirit bring to mind precious promises and glorious commands. Let Him flood your heart with the truth of the Bible so that you pray heartfelt, earnest, sincere, dependent prayers that align with God's Word. The stakes are high and the task is urgent and the dangers are clear and present. And Paul says, Put on the helmet of salvation, grab the word of God, and fight. Our endurance against opposition is not a given. The task of passing the gospel faithfully won't be easy. And so in the first place, Paul says, persist in grateful prayers for one another, for the church. And here are five practical ways you can do this. The first one is to pull up the member group in circle on your phone or print it out. And every day, pray through names in the circle group, in the member group, in circle. Pray. You may not know the people that you're praying for, but you can pick up a psalm and you can pray those truths for members you don't know very well. You can say, help Sherry to know that you are her shepherd. Help Mark to know that you are a very present help in trouble. We can pray for one another. We can rely on the word to do battle in the lives of our brothers and sisters. The second thing you do is when you meet up with another Cherrydale member, you can end the time with a simple prayer. It can be brief and it can be simple, but let's be sure that our relationships with one another are marked by prayer, understanding that the word and prayer are key to our holding fast to the gospel. The third thing you can do is to make sure that prayer is a normal part of your small group or life group. Making sure that you're reserving time to lift up one another's burdens, that you see prayer as a practical way to take 
the burden that's on this person's shoulders and to lift it up just a little bit, to get underneath that burden and to lighten their load through prayer. Let's make sure that we're praying in our life groups. Number four, you can come to one of our weekly prayer meetings. Every Sunday morning, we meet at 8.30 up in the prayer room just right through this wall. And we're praying for the body. We're praying for the church service. We're praying for our life together. We're done by 8.55. You can make it to Sunday class. There's also a women's Zoom prayer meeting every Monday at 8 a.m. where you can join with other women from the church and pray for God's work in our life together. You can email Kristen Brown if you want that Zoom link. And the fifth thing that I'll mention to you this morning is take advantage of praying during our services. A couple times a month, we have members and elders on the sides of the, of the worship center. Come and pray. Let them know how they can lift up your needs before the Lord and pray together. This life is filled with shiny, bright treasures and dark, long valleys. And the life of the early church, if you read through Acts, is marked by a devotion to the Word and a devotion to prayer. Let it mark us. Our persistent prayers are vital to the work of the gospel in the world and in one another's hearts. Persistent, grateful prayers. And then in 17 through 19, behold immeasurable love. Behold immeasurable love. Paul prays that the church in Ephesus would behold God's immeasurable love. Look at verse 17. I pray that the God of our Father, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Paul prays a Trinitarian prayer. He mentions the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. One God, three persons. And Paul says, I'm praying that the glorious Father of Jesus would give you the Holy Spirit and that the Spirit would reveal wisdom and revelation, that you would know the Spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know Him. Paul is telling us that the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the spiritual truths and promises and commands and plans of the Lord that are wonderfully stored in the Bible. Paul says, I'm praying that our glorious Father would send you His Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you might know God. And in doing this, the Spirit helps us to know Him more totally and completely. Knowledge of God can lead us to a deeper, more meaningful relationship with Him. When you learn about something, someone, discovery can lead you to appreciation. Now that our kids are a bit older, Nicole has had a little bit more time for a new hobby. And so there are houseplants all over our house. And these houseplants bring beauty and life and creation closer to us. And as I watch her learn and tend and enjoy, I'm learning new things about her and my appreciation grows as a result. Discovery can lead to appreciation. The Spirit's job, according to Paul here, or one of his jobs, is to take his word through wisdom and revelation and lead us to discovery about who God is, which breeds appreciation. There is a way of studying the Bible that produces pride. 
And there is a way of studying the Bible that provokes worship. The Spirit can lead us in treasuring the Bible in a way that leads us to worship. We are invited to behold God in His Word. And that's what Paul is praying for, that the Father would send the Spirit and that the Spirit would use the Word to help us know and behold God. Look at verse 18 and 19. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what is the wealth of His glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of His strength. Paul's giving us three specific truths that he's praying that we would see and behold. Three things. Our calling our inheritance, and God's power at work in us, okay? He wants our eyes to be enlightened so that we may know. He wants the eyes of our heart to see. That's a disturbing image to picture eyeballs on a heart. But this is what he wants us to see. What happens to your heart when your eyes see a brilliant red-orange sunset? What happens to your eyes when you catch the glimpse of a groom as his bride steps into the back of the church. Paul longs for our hearts to ingest and inhale truth about God from the Bible that erupts in worship. To breathe in the truth of the Bible like we breathe in oxygen. To drink in truth like a glass of cold water on a hot day. The word know there, so that you may know, is a word that means to be aware of, to correctly perceive, to rightly appreciate. I'm saying behold, that you see something and you attribute the right value to it. You behold it, you enjoy it, you savor it. It's more than just knowing, it's appreciating. And so Paul says to the Ephesians, I'm praying that Jesus that Jesus' Father, that His glorious Father would give you the Spirit and that the Spirit will help your hearts to behold the truth contained in the Bible, to know God in all His splendor. And Paul provides three specific truths that we should behold. First is to behold His calling. This is the message we've seen so far in Ephesians chapter 1. It's all about how God has called us into a relationship with him. Paul says, I know you feel like strangers in Ephesus or DC. I know you're opposed and ridiculed. I know you're weighed down by trials and suffering. I know this. I know that your ongoing sin struggles are discouraging to you, but we are sojourners and we're travelers. We have a calling that lives beyond this world that we're moving through. Paul wants our hearts to be captured by this calling. We have been chosen, predestined, redeemed, adopted, and sealed with His Spirit. That's our calling. God has injected meaning and purpose into this life that will far outlast this life. We have a future with Him, protected from every sad and broken and sinful thing. And Paul prays that the Spirit would use the Bible to reveal hope that would propel us forward. Here's the second truth to behold, the wealth of his inheritance. God has prepared an inheritance for us. We are also God's inheritance. 
But I think what Paul has in mind here is an inheritance that God has prepared for us. Because right back in verse 14, we read this, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. And we saw this in Romans 8 as well, in verse 18. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. A new creation, resurrected bodies, a sinless existence, and mission accomplished, the church gathered from every nation. These things are coming. We have a glorious, guaranteed inheritance that Jesus is preparing for us, which means, Ephesians, it's okay to lose in this life. It's okay to pass a bit on the pleasures of this world. They are fading and they are fleeting and we can enjoy them, but not like we can enjoy God himself. God's best for us is yet to come. And so we can let the promises of the future work themselves into the present in such a way to produce patience where we say from the heart level, I can wait for it. And it can also produce anticipation. I can't wait for it. And it can produce motivation. It is coming. When Christians in Ephesus trusted Jesus, they separated themselves from what was respectable to their neighbors. They pulled away. Artemis was not just on the periphery of their life in Ephesus. Artemis was their life. This is what they exported all across Asia Minor. And they left what was respectable to their neighbors. They left behind the popular religion and way of life. They disconnected from the wealthy income streams that they were a part of. And they began to endure the blowback of a city enraged by their new commitments to Jesus. These Christians needed to be reminded that the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, to behold the wealth of their inheritance. As they turned their back on so many things, they needed to be reminded that there was this rich inheritance that was coming to them. They only needed to wait for it. Kids and teenagers, the world will not like it if you decide to follow Jesus. You will be opposed. You will be an opposed minority in the world. If you follow Jesus, if you treasure him in his word, if you submit to his understanding of what is right and what is wrong, you will be resisted by the world. And it seems like the fight the world is engaging right now is bound up in God's view of sexuality and gender and marriage. There are other things, which we'll talk about in a minute, but that seems to be the fight that the world is engaging right now. And Jesus says in John 15, if you were of the world, then the world would love you as its own. If you were still worshiping Artemis, then the people in Ephesus would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And this is why Jesus says, Count the cost before you come follow me. Count the cost. He's implying that there will be a cost to follow after him. But I want you to know it is so worth it. It's so worth it. Paul asks the Spirit to use the Bible to remind us of the wealth of our inheritance that's coming. Here's the third truth to behold. Behold the greatness of his power. 
This is verse 19. Verse 19 describes the power of God at work in those who believe. Christians are recipients of God's power. Like leaves carried along by the wind, we are carried along by the strength of God, and His power can't be measured. It is immeasurable power at work within us. Try to gather up the power of the ocean current if you can. The waters saw you, O God. When the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deeps trembled. Psalm 77. Psalm 104. At your rebuke, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, the waters hurried away. Or Matthew 8. The men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? that even winds and sea obey him. Is there opposition in the world toward those who follow Jesus? Absolutely, yes. But Paul wants us to know in the midst of that opposition, the immeasurable power of God at work in us. And I'm summarizing these three, tru these three truths to behold as immeasurable love. That's the umbrella that catches these three truths because they're all demonstrations of God's love for us as his children. He chose us as his children. He's prepared a rich inheritance for us and he employs all the power necessary to get it done. The love I feel for Nicole is not easily expressed. There's so much bound up in my heart that I can't fully find words to express. And this is the love of a sinful human husband for his wife. What of the love of God for his children? What of the love of Jesus for his bride? What of the love of the Spirit for his inheritance? Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We may not feel very lovely to the Lord, as we make sense of life in a fallen world. But God's love for us surpasses knowledge. Behold a measurable love and then hold fast to the gospel. Here's the third point. Depend on matchless power. This is verses 20 to 23. Paul's going to double click on this idea of power and strength and spend verses 20 to 23 helping us further understand what he means by God's power. If holding fast to the gospel finally depended on us, then we'd be doomed to fail. But thankfully, our ability to hold fast to the gospel finally depends on God's power at work in us. Look at verse 20. God exercised this power in Christ, the power that we've just been talking about. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. God's immense power is displayed, Paul says, Paul prays, and it is revealed in the raising of Jesus from the dead and the seating of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Resurrection is central to the gospel. The resurrection means God's just wrath was satisfied. 
It is proof, it is evidence that God is satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus for all those who trust in him. And that same power, that same power that snatched Jesus out of the grave is at work in Christians. I'm not sure if you know this or not, but resurrection is not normal. It's not normal for people to come back from the dead. It's, it requires God's explosive power at work to bring a dead person back to life. And Paul says that same pulsating, life-animating power is at work in God's people. But listen, this isn't power that just delivers Jesus back from the dead. That's not all it was. It wasn't just returning Jesus to the state he was in before he was crucified. This isn't like the time that Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb with simple words. It's not like that. Lazarus returned to his old body only to die another time. Now, Jesus' resurrection was unlike anything that has taken place in history before. Jesus was raised to a new body, a body so glorious he was nearly unrecognizable to the disciples, and yet they still saw the scars of the crucifixion on his body. A body so glorious its properties were altered to the point where he's walking through bolted doors and standing before the disciples. A body so glorious, he's seen by more than 500 people at one time before he floats up into heaven in their eyesight. And now Jesus is seated at the right hand in the heavens. And this is not an obscure truth in the Bible. 12 times the New Testament hammers on this truth. God says, listen to me. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is seated at my right hand. But why? Why is Jesus seated at my right hand? It's a declaration of his thunderous authority over all things. It is a symbol that he is seated in victory over his enemies. Look at verse 21. Seated at the right hands in the heavens, verse 21, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul's employing this repetition not just to make his point, though he's doing that, but also to expand beyond human authorities to spiritual ones. Paul wants us to know that Jesus' authority extends beyond the human leaders to the spiritual ones at work in Ephesus and at work in our context. Jesus has authority over Caesar in Rome and over Satan no matter where he roams. Jesus has authority over this present age and also in the age to come. There is no leader now or in the future who can overpower Jesus's authority. There is no president no head of state, no ruler, no governor, no county manager, no school board, no coach, no boss, no parent, no demon, nor Satan himself has authority over Jesus. It is deafening authority. They are under his very feet. And so it may feel to the eyes of our face as we look around that Jesus does not have authority. As we look and see the rebellion in the world and the rebellion shockingly in our own hearts. But if we look with the eyes of the heart, 
If we look with eyes of faith, then we will be convinced of Jesus' authority, not only in the future age, but in the present. Look at verse 23. He subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Do you see that the church is not on the fringe of church history, of history? The church is the very center of history. Because we're often in the cultural minority, we tend to believe functionally that we're somehow off on the periphery, out on the fringe. But the reality is we are the focal point of God's story. God is at work redeeming his bride from every tribe and nation and then ushering us home. The world is on the periphery and on the fringe of what God is doing through the church. And those who oppose the church will either see the righteousness of the church and hear the proclamation of the church and so join the church, or the world will stay in the role of antagonist. The church is Christ's body. He is our head, and we are connected to his victory. And while we sojourn through life, we represent him in creation and invite others to come. We shouldn't assume that passing the gospel to the next generation will be easy. Doing so will require conviction and courage and our righteousness and our hard work and our dependence on God. So church, Christians, adults, teenagers, and children, we must hold fast to the gospel. And to do that, we've got to depend on Christ's victory, not on our own strength. And Paul has given us three ways to do that in this prayer. We can persist in grateful prayer, recognizing that it's the Spirit who's working through us. We can behold immeasurable love in God, and we can depend on His matchless power. So, when the teacher and the friends insult you in the classroom for holding fast to Jesus' ethics, His sense of right and wrong, or when the high school honors program threatens to deny you access because of religious activity, or when the boss insists that human decency requires you to view gender as fluid, or when you sacrifice participation in the travel team that will likely get you that college scholarship so that you can be here to worship with your church family most weeks, or when you receive pressure for refusing to conform to left or right political pressure, maintaining a prophetic voice in both directions, or when you receive blowback for living like you're already a citizen of heaven and taking a hard pass on the fleeting treasures of this world. Listen, in those pressurized moments, if we look by sight with the eyes of our face, then we will seem and feel like a losing minority in the world. And we may therefore be tempted to compromise gospel ethics to remain respectability in culture. But we have no option to compromise in moments like these, not if we love Jesus. 
We can't compromise because God doesn't separate gospel ethics from gospel promises. The book of Ephesians makes this point abundantly clear. In chapter 4, verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. You don't get gospel promises without then following those promises with a gospel-lived life by walking out what it means to be one saved by Christ. The way Christians live is empowered and constrained by the gospel Christians believe. The world may say, you can believe the gospel if you leave gospel ethics at the door. Christians can't. We have no option to compromise in pressurized moments like these, not if we love our neighbor. Not if we love Jesus and not if we love our neighbor. Because we're told that love and decency and respect require Christians to compromise. But compromise isn't loving. Is it loving to let someone dabble with an addiction to drugs? If you know that that drug will destroy a person's life, then love stands between the one we love and the thing that will kill them. Despite what we're hearing, we can love our neighbor without agreeing with them. We can love our neighbor well without agreeing with them. We have hope that will satisfy thirst and hunger. Dirty, broken cisterns can't satisfy thirst. And if you're a Christian, you've drank to the full the cup of living water in Christ. You know the hope that your neighbor needs. You know the love that will satisfy. You know the one who will forgive sins. We know the one who will provide meaning and purpose and everlasting joyful rest. To love God and our neighbors, we can't afford to look by sight in pressurized moments. We have to look by faith. And when we look by faith, when we look with eyes of faith, allowing the Spirit to remind us of truth that we can behold, truth that will change our hearts, will then come strength and deep conviction and stubborn courage will rise in our hearts and we will proclaim with our words and with our actions that Christ is our only hope in life and death. And we will hold fast to the gospel, persisting in grateful prayers, beholding immeasurable love and depending on his matchless power. Let's pray. God, would you work would you so work in our lives that we are convinced and persuaded as your spirit opens our eyes to see your truth and that truth takes root in our souls that you are worth everything. We want to follow our brothers and sisters in Ephesus who turned from the world for the sake of the world. And they stayed in that culture, they stayed in that city and they loved their neighbors. We want to be that kind of a people. Would you strengthen us according to your word? Would you strengthen us, Holy Spirit, as we see truths in your word? Would you help us to treasure them? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.